We are in the book of Micah, among other things. <laughs> what section of the Old Testament are we in? Minor prophets. Minor prophets. How many minor prophets are there? That's fair. Twelve, that's right. Yeah, twelve minor prophets here on the bottom row. How many major prophets? Yeah, five major prophets. And how does the length of the minor prophets compare with the length of the major prophets in terms of pages in the Bible? Many more major prophets. Yeah. This entire shelf of minor prophets would fit inside the book of Isaiah. <laughs> so, and for extra credit, how many minor prophets are we doing this morning? Four. The rest. No, we're not. We're doing four. No, next week we're doing the last two. What? You're right. We're doing five. I didn't turn my page. All right, we better get cracking. We got a lot to go. Huh? Um, <clears throat> Now, um, this is our last week to do this timeline. Um, <clears throat> we've been on this timeline since we started um, Kings, First Kings, I, I think is when we started this timeline. Um, I'm just showing a piece of it here, but um, this what what's the name what's the name of this kingdom here? That nation, southern kingdom or Judah? yeah, southern kingdom or Judah. What's this this one called here? Northern kingdom, northern kingdom or Israel. Israel? That's right. What was the capital of Israel? Samaria. Samaria. What was the capital of Judah? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's right. And the northern kingdom came to an end in 722 BC when they were carried into Assyrian captivity. What's the capital of Assyria? Nineveh, that's right. Who's the prophet we did last week that went and prophesied in Nineveh? Yeah, Jonah, that's right. The northern kingdom ended in 586 B.C. when they went into Babylonian captivity. And the capital of Babylonia is Babylon. (laughs) Babylonia is also known as Chaldea. And the Chaldeans were the rulers at that time. So in between 722 B.C. and 586 B.C., Assyria fell. And we're going to talk about that in in this morning's lesson. Um, They fell down... um, It would have been in the reign of Jehoiakim, I'm pretty sure, in the 609 to 598 range. I don't have the exact date. Um, Who was the last good king of the southern kingdom? Josiah, yeah, and we're going to talk about him a little bit in our lesson this morning. Now, our first prophet is Micah, and he prophesied basically the same time as Isaiah. Now, I mentioned last week that um, these prophets are not in chronological order. Um, The major prophets, for the most part, are in, in chronological order. Isaiah comes first. And uh, Daniel comes last in in terms of the years, but the minor prophets, um, they're just there's not a lot of order to them. Now at the very end, the last two 
or the last, I should say, the last three uh, really are in chronological order. The, the last three are all after the captivity and the return. But prior to that, they're just kind of jumbled together. And, and um, of course, sometimes we don't even know exactly when a prophet prophesied, which you know that makes it kind of difficult to put the, put these guys in chronological order. But but Micah we do because it says he prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, okay, so there's Jotham, there's Ahaz, there's Hezekiah, and you can see how this fits within Isaiah's period. Um, it also fits. It crosses the um, the boundary line of when a, when Israel is still a nation and when they cease to be a nation. Um, at least it's possible. It depends how far into Hezekiah he went because Hezekiah. Be, began reigning as king while the northern kingdom was still in existence. But what, which, which kingdom did Micah prophesy against? Northern or southern? Yeah, that's a, that's a surprise here. Both. It says concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And it's a little bit tricky as you read through. It's not always immediately apparent as to which kingdom he's talking about um, when he prophesies. But, but you can get some clues that pretty much... Help, help us narrow it in. Um, so we'll look at the outline then. We've got four major sections. Judgment against Israel and Judah for the first three chapters and then hope for Israel and Judah. Then the Lord's case against Israel and the author of the outline just says it's only Israel and there's reasons when you look in that chapter why you'd say that. And then finally gloom turns to triumph at the end which nearly all of your prophets end up that way with, with a triumph looking far into the future. <clears throat> so the first section, Judgment is Israel and Judah. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 3. For behold, the Lord is coming forth from His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. And going on, it says the mountains will melt under Him. I mean, we're talking about major judgment coming here. Um, in verse 6, he says, For I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the open country. Planting places for a vineyard, I will pour her stones down into the valley and will lay bare her foundations. So that, of course, is a prophecy against the northern kingdom. But in verse 5 at the end of it, it mentioned Judah. So we're talking about both northern and southern here. There's a major judgment that God's going to bring on all these different nations. Now, I'm not going to spend time on verses 10 through 15, but I will mention one of the reasons why you may have found those verses difficult to understand is because... And in, in, with each city, he makes a play on words between this, the, the meaning of the name of the city and, then, and what you're supposed to do or not do. And if you're not reading it in Hebrew or you don't know Hebrew, as would be the case for all of us here, it doesn't do you a lot of good. Now, if you have good footnotes on your Bible, it, it may mention uh, something that will give you a hint about it. But this is some. This is why those verses may have been a little bit strange when you're reading them. Chapter 2 continues this same section. Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. When morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They covet fields and then seize them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. And this is a picture, this is a pretty sad picture of what's going on in, in Israel and, and Judah. The, the rich people are just stealing from the poor. And we've seen that before in other prophecies, in other prophets. Um, 
And so in verse 3, he says, I'm, God says, I'm, gonna plan, I'm planning calamity against you. Um, in verse 6, he quotes the people, either of, of Judah or Israel, do not speak out. So they speak out. But if they do not speak out concerning these things, reproaches will not be turned back. Micah is just explaining the attitude of the people he's prophesying to is, we don't want to hear about this. Don't, don't you go on and on with your uh, foolish talk. We don't want to hear it. And his answer is, if nobody speaks out about these things, then reproaches will not be turned back. God's judgment can't be stopped unless there's a prophet that, that warns you people about what you're doing. So then in verse 11, I, get a, I, got a, I always get a kick out of verse 11 whenever I read this. It says, Micah is saying to these people, if a man walking after wind and falsehood had told lies and said, I will speak out to you concerning wine and liquor, he would be spokesman to this people. <laughs> That's the kind of prophet you people want. Now let me ask this. How different is that from the modern, modern America today? I mean, what, what, do, what do Americans want to hear about? I mean, they don't want to hear a prophet saying, woe is us because we need to repent. That's the last thing I want to hear. <laughs> so moving on to chapter 3, same section again, still judgment against Israel and Judah. And I said, hear now heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? The heads would be the judges, the kings, you know, the rulers. They, they need to know justice. Um, but they don't. In verse 3 he says, Who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them, break their bones and chop them up as for the pot and as meat in a kettle. Now, of course, he's not talking literally here. They're not cannibals. But, but he's talking... Um, it's, in, in essence, that's the way they're treating these people when they steal their houses, steal their lands, and, and just and deprive them of justice. Now, does that does anyone recognize that kind of talk from something we've done in the past? Does this sound at all familiar? It, yeah, it it um, it does. It's like um, Ezekiel chapter thirty-four. Um, Ezekiel talked to the against the rulers of the people and used some of the same kind of analogies about these these shepherds which instead of taking care of the sheep they eat the sheep that, that's the kind of thing that's being talked about in both of these places now now who wrote first Micah or Ezekiel yeah Micah did yeah because Ezekiel wrote after the captivity had already begun um, Micah's prophesying sometime before although it's possible that Micah no, it's not possible. Micah couldn't possibly have lived into the captivity. He was back in the days of Isaiah. Um, so Ezekiel was probably familiar with this when, when he prophesied. In verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. What kind of prophets are we talking about here? False. Yeah, false prophets. When they have something to bite with their teeth, they cry peace. But against him who puts nothing in their mouths, they declare holy war. <laughs> <laughs> you feed me, I'll, I'll tell you nice things are coming. You, you, you don't feed me, I'm going to warn you that your disaster is going to come on you. Well, and again, that that can be done today. I mean, you can get preachers 
who they use the pulpit for selfish purposes. You know? And if if the if the church doesn't do something that they if the church does something they don't like, it doesn't matter whether God says anything about it, but they don't like it, then wow, they blast the congregation from the pulpit. But if the church is being nice to the preacher, you know, and then he he's, he says nice, peaceful things as the church, it's just it's not the way it ought to be. The prophet needs to say what God wants said, not not just what he thinks would be nice to say. Um, Verse 11, her leaders have pronounced judgment for a bribe, her priests instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. (laughs) Oh boy, everyone's the same. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, Is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. (laughs) Boy, are these people blind. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. All right, the next section is hope for Israel and Judah. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob that He may teach us about His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Where have we seen that before? Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 2 has almost these exact words. And I'm not going to read all the verses, but um, there's a whole section all the way through verse 5. And, and Isaiah has almost identical thing. And, and we, I don't know who did it first, either Micah or Isaiah, because they were prophesying at the same time. But... I'm sure one of them was familiar with what the other one said. I don't think they each came up with the exact same words um, um, completely independently. I understand the Holy Spirit is the one that leads each of them into the truth, but um, He also uses the knowledge and the experiences of the, of the person himself. I mean, if you read Paul, Paul um, Paul's writings sound different from Peter's because he's a different person. It's the same Holy Spirit inspiring both of them, but He uses what each has and what each knows. Uh, but anyway, this is a prophecy, obviously, of, of the church. It's, a, it's looking forward hundreds of years to, to our time and even farther into the future. We're still looking for some of the fulfillment ourselves. But meanwhile, we're not there yet. Verse 10, Rise and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now you will go out of the city, dwell in the field, and go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So he's letting them know this, these good times are not coming immediately. Um, they're going to have to pay the price for their sins in the first before they're going to be ready for this wonderful blessing. Then going on to chapter 5, still the same section in verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now if you go way back, back in, into the book of Samuel, what famous person is from Bethlehem? David, yes. It's, Bethlehem was his city. 
So if you were reading back in Micah's day, if you were reading that a ruler was going to come from Bethlehem, who would you think of? The son of David. And God had been promising that for many hundreds of years at this point. So this is the promise of the Messiah. And you may recall in the book of Matthew when the wise men came to Herod to ask, hey, where is this king? It is the one that's been born king of the Jews. He asked the Jews and what did they tell him? Bethlehem. They quoted from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They knew that the Messiah, they didn't know his name was going to be Jesus, but they knew the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And, and sure enough, that's exactly where he was. And he was the one to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Of course, we understand that before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. So his goings forth certainly were from eternity. In verse 4, And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Still talking about Jesus there. Now, Going down to verse 10, move. Um, it will be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. Now, at first glance, that looks strange. I mean, why would God cut off the people's horses and chariots? Isn't that what they need? Isn't that what they depend on? And that's precisely why He's cutting them off, because they're depending on those things instead of depending upon God. And so in verse 13, He says, I will cut off your carved images and your sacred pillars from among you so that you will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. They were depending upon idols as well. He's cutting off everything they were depending upon. So there's only going to be one thing left. And what is that? God. That's right. And sometimes He has to do that with us too. <clears throat> and when He does that, it's painful, but it's because He loves us. Now chapter 6, the Lord's case against Israel. Um, in verse 3, my people, what have I done to you and how have I reared you? Answer me. <laughs> I like that question. Um, verse 6, here is their answer. Or Micah is kind of putting this answer in their mouths. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Do you recognize that verse? <laughs> we had our lectures last November on that verse. And you see the context now. We're dealing with people that are just very wicked. And... Mike is trying to get them to understand that, look, just the fact that you keep offering these sacrifices in the temple is not going to save you. There's got to be deeds in, in, during the week that, that match what you're claiming to, you know, on, on the Sabbath day. Alright, and then finally, gloom turns to triumph in chapter 7. In verse 2, the godly person has perished from the land and there is no upright person among men. All them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. This is still on the, on the bad side of it. We'll get to the good side. But I want to read verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against her mother. Daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. 
You want to recognize that verse? Jesus quoted it. Yeah, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 36, He quoted this when He was sending His disciples out to go preach. He was warning them about the terrible things that are going to come upon them. Then in verse 7, But as for me, I will watch expectantly for the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him. I think this is the whole nation speaking. Until He pleads my case and executes justice for me, He will bring me out to the light and I will see His righteousness. So now we're looking toward the future when God brings His people back from captivity. And jumping down to verse 18, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, He will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. So it ends with the hope of the future. And of course, we know that ultimately that hope was looking towards the Messiah. Alright, next is the book of Nahum. Who does Nahum prophesy against? Nineveh, yes. Um, where was Nineveh? It was in Assyria, yeah. Northeast from, from Israel. And who's the other guy that went to Nineveh earlier? Jonah, yeah. And when Jonah went, what did he say to them? And Nineveh will be overthrown. And were they overthrown? <laughs> Why not? Because they listened and <laughs> they repented, yeah. But Nahum doesn't actually go to Nineveh. And the Ninevites don't repent in this case. What he says really is going to come to pass. Now, we don't know exactly when he prophesied. It had to be obviously before Nineveh was overthrown, which I, as I mentioned earlier is in the um, 609 to 598 range, somewhere around 600 BC. So, you know, put him somewhat earlier back when the Assyrians were beating up on God's people. Um, and that's the best we can do. We didn't even know where Elkosh was. I mean, he was he was from the city of Elkosh, but there's different ideas on where that was. So we don't know much about him. But we, but his prophecy is all against Nineveh. So um, the first section is the Lord's anger against Nineveh, chapter one. Um, and in verse two, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and He reserves wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is His way and clouds are the dust beneath His feet. And jumping down to verse 9, talking to the Ninevites again, the capital of Assyria. Whatever you devise against the Lord, He will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. And then down to verse 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. I will cut off idol and image from the house of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are contemptible. Now this is a picture of... Way back here, you see that hill. That hill is an artificial hill formed by the fact that Nineveh was on that hill for hundreds of years. Um, and these walls here, um, I believe those are those walls are have been reconstructed. I'll show you some more pictures a little bit later of that. Uh, the people this is in, in our Iraq today. It's just 
on the banks of the uh, Tigris River. Um, and, and over this, they've, they've been excavating this mound since the early 1800s, 1820s I think was when they began, and, and at various times they've done it. And, and um, they've gotten fabulous amounts of archaeological treasure from this, uh, from this mound because they've excavated three different palaces of three different kings of, of the Assyrians. But from the, time, from the time when Nineveh was overthrown in around 600, it has not been occupied since then. Um, and so you have this mound. You, you do have people living in the area. That's, that's a modern water tower. But um, the, 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 the Nineveh itself is not occupied. Um, they, they had 15 gates around the city. And this is one that's been reconstructed. You can't really see inside there, but that part is original. Uh, these tall parts here are made out of mud brick and they've already started to erode, but they reconstructed it. They tried to make it look like what the original was. Um, these stone things, at least on the top part, those are original. They go all the way back to the days of Nineveh. Um, they're called Merlons. Down here it says the, the Merlons are original. Um, but it said they had 15 different gates. The walls around the city were seven miles uh, long. It, it, for 50 years, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. Uh, that's what archaeologists tell us. Um, and so this prophecy is against the largest city in the whole world, and it just came down with a huge crash. Um, this is another gate um, that they've reconstructed. And I, I'm not sure that the way, the way I read about it, it sounds like they may not have reconstructed all the way up to the top of the original gate. Um, but again, it, it, they haven't been able to spend full time on it. The Iraqis have had other problems they've had to deal with. Um, so one more verse in from chapter 1. Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feast, O Judah. Pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you. He has cut off completely. What was... This messenger who arrived running on the mountains, what was his message that he brought to the people? Matthew? Water. He brought message that Nineveh was overthrown. <laughs> That's why it was a message of peace and the, and the wicked one will not pass through you again. <laughs> so it was good news for, for some people. It wasn't good news for Nineveh, of course. Um, Alright, so chapter 2 is Nineveh's fall. In, um, in verse 4, the chariots race madly in the streets. They rush vividly in the, wildly in the squares. Their appearance is like torches. They dash to and fro like lightning flashes. You can, you can just picture the, the turmoil, the chaos of this battle uh, in the city. Verse 8, Though Nineveh was like a pool of water throughout her days, now they are fleeing. Stop! Stop! But no one turns back. And so finally, chapter 3, Woe to Nineveh, verse 4. All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorcerers who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. She had deceived the whole world. And this you always have this with the, the most powerful nation in the world. They always deceive everyone else. You know, we've got the answer. Join in with us and you too will be rich. And it's just, 
He calls a harlotry of prostitution. It's not what an, a God created a nation to be. <clears throat> All right, now we get to Habakkuk, and this is a little, this is a lovely book. Um, Habakkuk, we, we don't know when he prophesied or anything else, but he, he he obviously is prophesying against Judah. We know that because who's the enemy that's going to come and, and overthrow Judah? The Chaldeans or the Babylonians? Yes, and so. The book begins with a question that Habakkuk asks and how God answers it. In verse 2, the question is, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry to you, violence, yet you do not save. Who is being violent? Yeah, the rulers of Judah. The people who were supposed to be the people of God were being violent. And and so Habakkuk is basically saying, God, how long are you going to put up with this? You're righteous. You ought to punish these people. And so God gives him an answer in verse 6. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. Of course, now He's going to tell them. <laughs> For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And i got a picture for this. That's a Chaldean on a horse with his bow and arrow. And I mean they were very proud of their their fierce army. And of course their army basically did whatever they wanted because they were the most powerful in the world. And um, so that brings us to Habakkuk's second question. God answers his first question. The second question is in verse thirteen. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And see, here's the problem. Habakkuk was complaining about how wicked the people of Judah were. But who was worse than that? The Babylonians were. And yet God's going to use the Babylonians to capture Judah. And Habakkuk says, God, you can't do that. <laughs> You're a righteous God. So he's got this big problem. Um, so in chapter 2, verse 4, God answers and He says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. God, God divides basically all of humanity into two groups. You've got the one group that lives by pride and you've got the other group that lives by faith. This verse is quoted three different times in the New Testament. It's quoted in Romans, Galatians, and in Hebrews. The righteous will live by faith. Um, but even today, the vast majority of humanity are living by pride. And, that, and that's the only alternative, unfortunately. Um, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what God is working towards. And I, in my judgment, He's still working towards it. We've got a long ways to go, but I'm praying that we'll get there. That the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's pretty thorough. <laughs> um, verse 19, Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone arise. And that is your teacher? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside it. That's idols. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. The Lord's not an idol. It's foolish to worship idols, but the Lord is someone we need to be silent before. And so then we come to the last chapter, which is a psalm. It's a prayer, but it's just like a psalm. In fact, you notice how it begins? A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. And doesn't that sound like the headings of one of the psalms? And at the end, it says, for the choir director are my stringed instruments. Again, that's just like a psalm. And, and, and that's exactly what this is. It's, it's poetry. Um, it's, he says in verse um, 16, he, he, this prayer has to do with what's coming. He knows the Chaldeans are coming. And, and I gather from the way he's talking that he thinks it's going to be in his lifetime, which probably it will be. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. I mean, how would you like to be someone living in Jerusalem when the Chaldeans take the city? It's just, just terrible to imagine. But Habakkuk has faith. He has faith in God. And so notice, I'm going to read the last three verses of his prayer here. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls. Now, let me just interrupt here. How much food is there going to be if all these things happen? None. None. No food. How about at the grocery store? <laughs> this is the grocery store. There's nothing. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places. What's a hind? That's a deer, yeah. Deer are fast. They can run fast. So God has made it back His feet like a deer's feet. So, this is faith. I mean, when a guy says, I don't care if there's no food in my house, I will rejoice in God, that's faith. He's not living by pride, he's living by faith. Any questions up to this point? All right. One more time with the timeline for. We got Zephaniah, and who was the king he prophesied in during? Josiah. Josiah, yes. Um, here we go. Last good king of Judah. But the people weren't that good even in the days of Josiah. Josiah was a good king and he was trying to get the people to do what's right, but they had turned bad during the days of Manasseh. And they were going to stay bad all the way to the end. Um, so, we've got four points for that outlined of Zephaniah. Just three chapters. But the first point is very short. The first point is just the introduction of the first three verses. Verse 2, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Wow. <laughs> We're talking about a major day of the Lord coming. Which is the title of our next section. The day of the Lord coming on Judah and the nations. 
in verse 4, So I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place and the names of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Now by the way, if, if Zephaniah prophesied in the days of Josiah, who else was prophet at that time? Major prophet. No, he died in the days of Manasseh. So he was, he was gone by this time. Jeremiah, yeah. Jeremiah prophesied from the days of Josiah right on through to the end. So Zephaniah and Jeremiah were contemporaries. Um, Alright, verse uh, 12. It will come about at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. If the Lord doesn't do good or evil, what's the Lord going to do? And that's their attitude, yeah. Isn't that the attitude of people today? You know, God's not going to do anything. You know, um, so they don't take God into consideration in their plans at all. But verse eighteen: Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of His jealousy, for He will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. And so he continues in chapter 2 with mentioning some of the enemies here. Gaza is one in verse 4 and and, um, Moab in verse 8 and some others like that. But I'm going to jump on into the next section. Well, no, I'm sorry. This is is the next section, chapter 2. In verse 3, Seek the Lord all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And then in verse 13, and He will stretch out His hand against the north and destroy Assyria. And He will make Nineveh a desolation, parched like the wilderness. Flocks will lie down in her midst. All beasts which range in herds, both the pelican and the hedgehog, will lodge in the tops of her pillars. And so on and so forth. Let me just mention, we had a prophecy against Babylon kind of like this. Except, there was Babylon that said they won't, they won't even have flocks lying down in her. She'll just be deserted. And I've, and I've shown you some pictures of Babylon that that's exactly what came to pass. But with Nineveh, the prophecy is that flocks will lie down in Nineveh. And, and, that, and that location is a place where the shepherds over the centuries have been in the habit of taking their flocks and pasturing them. It's a nice uh, grassy hill now. <laughs> Even though at one time, you know, it was the site of the most populous nation of a city on earth. Chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to her who was rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. What city is he talking about here? This is Jerusalem. Yeah, he's not talking about Nineveh anymore. He's talking about Jerusalem. Um, and then the last section redemption of the remnant. Um, in verse 12, but I will leave among you a humble and lowly people and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. God's going to punish Jerusalem until He gets rid of all the proud, all the high-minded people and the ones that are left are going to be humble, lowly, recognizing that God is the one who rules, not us. Verse 14, 
Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. Now that obviously is looking way farther forward than just when they came back from Babylonian captivity. It's looking into the days of the Messiah, the church. And, and in one sense, even it's still future for us. Verse 20, At that time, I will bring you in even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. All right, one more book, and this one's just two chapters long, Haggai, although it's got five sections in our outline here. Um, Haggai is the first of the prophets that we have after the return from the captivity. That's why we're not using our, our timesheet of kings anymore because there are no more kings. They, how long were they in captivity? 70 years. 70 years. So at the end of that time, they came back. And at the time Haggai was writing, there were still some people alive who could remember seeing the original temple. Because although the captivity lasts for 70 years, the temple was destroyed perhaps 20 years into that captivity uh, because there were several captivities and the, and the 70 years starts with Ezekiel's captivity whereas his temple was destroyed at the very end when um, Zedekiah went into captivity. So there's still some people alive in Haggai's day that remember the original temple and he's going to mention that in this book here. Uh, the first message is the call to rebuild the temple. What book tells the story about this? History? Ezra, yes. Do you remember in the book of Ezra when they started building the temple and then the enemies got after them and wrote letters and they quit? They quit building the temple? This book of Haggai is a book after they, after they stopped for a while. And so in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. That was their attitude. You know, we can't rebuild the temple because, you know, the king of Persia tells us not to. So in verse 4, God asks them a question. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? We show our attitude by where we put our money, by where we put our attention. And, and they were putting their attention on their own houses and not on the Lord's house, and, and God was not happy. So here's what He says is going on in verse 6. You have sown much, they planted a lot, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough, and he who earns earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Why is that happening to them? Yeah, God's not happy with them, that's why. Um, so, the second section, beginning of verse 12, is the response of Zerubbabel and the other people. Zerubbabel was the governor of, of, of Jerusalem. In verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Wow, this is, this is exactly what we need. So, we come now to the second message, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. The temple will be filled with glory. In verse 3, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? Now, how did, how did the former glory compared with, compare with the new one? Pretty sad. 
Yeah, the former was way better. Solomon's temple, compared to what these poor people were building, <laughs> no comparison. And these people were upset. These people that could remember, they say, this is terrible. And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But he makes a prophecy. In verse 9, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, I think there's two ways that that prophecy can be fulfilled. One way is this was actually the temple that Jesus came to. When He was on earth and was in the temple, it was this temple, although it had been radically renovated by Herod the Great. He had made it much fancier than what it had started out as. But I don't think that I don't think it was the glory that Herod gave to it that, that God was talking about here. I think he was talking about the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, came to that temple. But the longer view, I think, is looking at the temple as being the temple of the, of God's people today. And then we have the third message: a defiled people purified and blessed. Um, in verse 19, is the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So God is turning things around. They had, they had started out, they would plant a lot and they would get little. He says, now that you've done what I told you to do, I'm going to start blessing you again. And so finally the book ends with a promise to Zerubbabel. In verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now what's that a prophecy of? Right. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David, and he's also an ancestor of Jesus. He's in Matthew chapter 1 in the list. I think this is a prophecy of the Messiah. He, he is going to be honored by being one of the ones who is the ancestor of Jesus Christ. God is pleased with Zerubbabel. Any other questions or comments? For them? All right. Next week we finish the Old Testament. <laughs> Matthew, are you using this? Okay, I guess I'll just leave it down then.